This week we're talking about feet fitted with the gospel of peace. And so this is Ben. Ben, obviously, uh, in as you fight fires, you're not going in there with slides or tennis shoes on. You have some, some specific footwear that you use. So tell us a little bit about that footwear and why it's important for your feet to kind of stay protected as you're going in to fight fires. Well, luckily we have those that come before us that get to do all this testing, that get all these standards and everything in place. But uh, we have, a, have an 18 inch high boot that we wear, uh, steel toe or composite toe, and then they have fire resistant rubber that won't melt. And so we spend a lot of time walking around in fire and fiery situations, whether we're fighting wildland, whether we're in a structure fire, that keeping our feet and our feet underneath us is very important to making sure that we make forward movement on what it is that we're doing. Yeah, I would say, you know, without the right shoes, like, We've talked in previous videos, the importance of protecting your core with a breastplate of righteousness and stuff like that. But, but with the shoes, if you have the wrong footwear, would you be able to do it at all? Like what you do at all? No, and you know, I think any firefighter that's out there, we've been in different situations with grass fires that we may be on our off duty and around our house or be somewhere that there's a grass fire and you've walked out or up close to a fire and we get so used to having our bunker gear on that we know what our limitations are with our bunker gear on and with our boots on that when you are out at your house and you walk up to a fire, if you're burning brush or whatever it is, that you forget sometimes how real fire is. You quickly, you quickly realize that those shoes are pretty important. Well, good morning. Man, it's so good to be with you this morning. We're going to go on a journey in the sixth chapter of Ephesians so you can grab a Bible and turn there while, um, while we're doing all this. If you're part of our North Campus, South Campus, one of our physical locations, we love, love doing this with you. And our online family, you hear it always, people all over not only our region but all over the world. It is a joy for us to share some time together as we encourage each other to do one thing. We want to encourage each other to take our next step with Jesus. How many of you would confess you have not arrived, you still need to grow in Jesus? Put your hands up, all over. That is going to be all of us and that. Just remember that when we get to something later on in the message. Because we exist as a church to help people take their next step with Jesus and to be those who bless our neighbors. But I'm going to confess to you this morning, that when I look back on my Christian walk, the place I feel like I've made the most mistakes has been in my interactions with my neighbors. That which I likely regret most in my Christian journey is how very wrong I've been in being right. And before you dismiss me as just talking in circles, let me explain. When I became a follower of Jesus, I was 13 years of age, and I found this thing rise up inside of me that I wanted to war, that I wanted to fight for what is true. Now, I will tell you, I think it's something that's supposed to be in all of us to a level, and especially among men, but that's another sermon for another day. But I found this thing rise up that I wanted to battle, I wanted to war for what is true. Now, you need to know that when I was 13 years of age, I wasn't a big dude at all. I was small for my age, small of stature, really was not prone to physical altercations at all. Like, I had an older brother, but we didn't scrap. And the reason we didn't scrap is he was his full adult size at age 12. I'm not, I am not lying to you. And I was not. I was small, but I was not dumb. And I knew that I wasn't going to win any fight that I had with him at all. I wasn't really going to uh, win any physical altercations with anyone. But my brother and I argued a lot. We debated. We fought with words. And I made a discovery I was good with words. 
My mind worked really fast. My mouth worked even faster in life, which meant, by the way, that my feet had to move fast because I would cross the line with the man child that was my brother, and I would have to get to a parent really quick to save myself. You know what I mean? So I had this reality going on in my life. Like I, I had never heard of debate teams. My high school didn't have one. My college didn't have one. I heard about one in my late um, 20s, and I was like bummed out. Because I thought I would have been great at debate. I would have loved debate. But I actually think Jesus was saving the world from me. <laughs> you see, when I became a Christian, I really did want to share Jesus in his ways. But in my mind, sharing Jesus in his ways wasn't to bless. It wasn't to begin with prayer and to listen and to eat with someone and share and serve and all that kind of stuff that we talk about. It wasn't even to enter into a loving discourse. I was going to enter into conversation. I was going to turn that conversation to what I wanted that conversation to be. And I was going to stand for what I knew was true no matter what anybody thought about me. Which is a nice way of saying I didn't care how I treated anyone. And so I would enter into a conversation with either a person who was not yet a follower of Jesus or maybe somebody uh, was a Christian from another church in my church denomination at the time, didn't think they were right. And I would, without fail, um, turn it to something I wanted to talk about. I would go into debate mode. I would argue zealously and passionately, not really caring at all what it cost. And the person who paid the price for what I was willing to give out was not me. It was the other person. To this day, I wonder how many people I hindered from the kingdom of God. How many people didn't seek first the kingdom of God because of the way I talked to them about the kingdom of God. And here's what's interesting. I look back on a lot of those conversations and I've got a lot of years of biblical study under my belt. And when it came to like biblical doctrine and biblical theology in a lot of areas, I'm convinced I was right. But the way I presented what was right was equally as wrong. By the way I stood for truth, I was wrong. Ironically, in the name of standing for truth, I actually compromised the truth. And in doing that, I believe I was falling prey to the schemes of the enemy. You see, we've been unpacking this passage in Ephesians 6 for a lot of weeks. Now, maybe you're new with us or you're just returning to school or something like that and you're gonna need to go listen to some messages that you want. I think overall, it has been a great journey. But if you've been here a lot of these weeks, you've heard us say, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes. Say schemes. The schemes of the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now hear that really carefully. We do not wrestle, we do not fight, we do not battle against flesh and blood. I think we're so used to hearing that that we forget the implication that we do wrestle, but we wrestle against authorities, against the powers, the cosmic powers of darkness in this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, we absolutely have an enemy. The enemy just happens not to be human. Now, I understand there are times where you get so oppositional with someone, a coworker or a family member 
or someone online or something like that that they really do feel like an enemy. And I understand there are times when a nation will unrighteously invade another nation like is happening with Russia invading Ukraine. I'm sure the Ukrainians rightfully see the Russians as an enemy right now. But even in these most extreme of situations, we have to realize we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We must see beyond what we can see into the unseen and know that there's reality behind all of this. See, one of the tactics, one of the schemes of the enemy is to get our eyes off of the real enemy and convince us that our enemy is flesh and blood. To convince us somehow it's human. But knowing that our enemy is not ultimately human makes a piece of the armor of God. All the armor of God is is the attributes of our lives that we're to seek to walk in day in, day out in our lives. Knowing that our enemy is not ultimately human makes one of the pieces of the armor of God make so much sense. You see, the Bible says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, which we talked about several weeks ago along with the breastplate of righteousness. But then it says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Somebody say peace. Now, we all know the importance of shoes, don't we? Having the right shoes for the right activity is of utmost importance. I bet all of us have found ourselves at some point in time involved in an activity where I didn't put the right shoes on. One of the joys of the past years of my life, one of the things I've been blessed to do and love it so much, is to do different kinds of bird hunting. And there are some kind of bird hunting, believe it or not, where you walk 10 to 12 miles a day. And it's not like West Texas walking where it's flat. You're up and down on hills. You're going up cliffs and stuff like that. And some of you are saying, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. You're crazy. I don't care. I love it. I'm going to do it. You don't have to. But the first time I did it, wrong shoes. You know what that means? It means there are blisters on your feet the size you did not know you could create. I had them all over my feet. You say, what do you do? Believe it or not, I duct taped them. Duct tape will fix anything to some level, okay? And I kept on going, but you know what I discovered? Every step I took was cautious. It was uncertain because every step was an attempt to avoid pain. See, we know shoes are of utmost importance because they're foundational to whatever activity you're going on. That's why for a firefighter, their boots are of so much importance. It's true of a first century Roman soldier, which is the... um, image in Ephesians chapter 6. Roman soldiers had on shoes. They didn't have boots. They didn't do boots back then. They had what we would call sandals, but they were unique sandals. They actually had straps that went all the way up their calf, and they tied at the below their knee to make sure that no matter what they did, those shoes weren't coming off, because in the midst of hand-to-hand combat, you want to keep your shoes on, right? The second thing is they actually had knobs on the bottom of them. Some of them had nails, So you've been in sandals before and took a step and slid, right? If you're actually battling hand-to-hand, you don't want that to happen. So the Romans created this thing where they had the ancient version of a cleat. And they believed that the sawing footing that they had in hand-to-hand combat gave them a, a, a severe advantage over their enemies. As we engage in the matters of life, God says there's a kind of shoe that we're supposed to be wearing. And you know what that shoe is? It is a readiness to bring peace. 
That is what gives us a solid footing because the reality of the gospel is that the gospel is about bringing peace. The heart of the gospel is peace. You see, around church, we talk a lot about the grace of God. I don't know about you, but the longer I follow Jesus, and it's been a lot of years now, 43 of them, the more amazed I am at the grace of God the more overwhelmed I am at the love of God. We talk about it a lot because it is so incredible and we're gonna keep talking about it. But because of the enormity of the grace of God and how awesome it is, I think we tend to minimize our reality without the grace of God. You see, before we became a Jesus follower, the Bible uses a term of us. We were God's enemies. And you're like, no, not, yeah, enemy, subject to the anger of God. Don't minimize this. Get in your mind that person. We're gonna get personal right here, aren't we? We all have them. Now you're saying, well, they're not my enemy because you now know your enemy is not flesh and blood, but you know, we have that person that we're most oppositional with. That coworker, that person online, that family member, that, that whoever that's kind of felt like an enemy in our life. Just get that person in your mind and realize that our sin before a holy God made us far, 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 far worse than they. We were enemies of God. We created the animosity. What did God do? God made a path for peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, man, somebody should get excited about this verse. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel is that when we did nothing to bring peace, God initiated a path and a process and a possibility for peace in our lives. So it should not surprise us when Jesus looked at a crowd of people very similar to us and said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You see, that which characterizes the sons and daughters of God is not that we just keep peace. It doesn't mean that we always agree on everything. It means that we are those who seek to make peace. Our feet, what gives us a solid foundation, our feet are fitted with the readiness. Because of the gospel of peace that rules in our hearts, we come ready into any situation to bring peace and to make peace. And I'm telling you, right now, I bet the Spirit of God is downloading lots of implications about our our day-to-day life. Lots of things that are going on in our life, but there is one that I'm telling you, we, in my opinion, we as God's people need to hear now as much as we ever have. The way we disagree matters as much as what we disagree on. The way we disagree matters as much as what we disagree on. Notice, I didn't say the way we disagree matters more. I said what? As much. We know Jesus prayed a great deal. Here's what's interesting, we don't know what Jesus prayed very much. I mean, it's likely since Jesus taught the disciples to pray what we call the Lord's Prayer, they came to him and said, Jesus, how should we pray? And he said, well, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you've heard it before, so it's likely Jesus prayed that prayer. We only have one other instance where we know that Jesus prayed. You can read it this week in the 17th chapter of John. In John 17, Jesus is hours before his crucifixion. 
I don't believe this prayer actually happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. I believe it happened immediately before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he sweated drops of blood because of the immensity of what he was about to face. But right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, right after they had the, what we call the Last Supper, the Passover meal, he prayed with his apostles. He prayed for his apostles, but amazingly, he prayed for us. He prayed for anyone who would be at peace with God through the act he was about to do. Now, here's what I believe. I believe that what was most important in his heart, what was most prevalent in his mind for us, is what he prayed hours before his crucifixion. And he prayed, may they, they is us, may they be brought to complete unity. Notice this, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now let's be honest right here. If I'd asked you to make a top 10 list of things that you think were forefront on Jesus' heart and mind right before he was crucified, you would have had all sorts of things come to you. I doubt unity would have been one of them. I would have doubted that the way we walk in relationship would have even entered our mind. But Jesus says, look at it, that the way we love, the way we walk in unity is the key means, not just a means. It seems to be the key means to show the world the reality of who Jesus is. And I will challenge you that that unity does not come by uh, complete agreement on everything. It comes by the way we disagree. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. I don't know if you have seen the sharpening process of a sword or something like that, but it is a clash. For iron to sharpen iron, it must clash. For one person to sharpen another, guess what? Some of you are saying, we got a clash. Well, you at least have to disagree. Remember, I asked you earlier, how many of you need to take next steps with Jesus? How many of you need to grow? And we go, well, yeah. I need to hear, us to hear we need disagreement, but it needs to be humble disagreement because disagreement is necessary for growth. How am I gonna take a next step with Jesus if I think every step I'm taking with Jesus is right? But maybe it's a brother, maybe it's a sister who shows me that the step that I'm taking is wrong and I need to take a different kind of step and I need to grow. But anytime we walk in this disagreement, we enter with what? Our feet, we put on our feet the gospel of peace, they're fitted, ready to bring peace, even in what we disagree on. Love one another, the scripture says, with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What might it do to our disagreements? If both parties were at the same time seeking to love, seeking to outdo each other in showing honor while sharing different kinds of truth, would it not facilitate a kind of unity? Even if at the end of the conversation, we do not agree. And might the world see something radically different from what seems to be the norm today? Feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. The way we disagree matters as much as what we disagree on. And Jesus, last hours of his life, said this is one of the most important things that you can see in your journey of faith. That's what we do as brothers and sisters talking about the matters of life. But I'm gonna challenge it doesn't just extend to fellow Jesus followers. I challenge it extends to everyone. In every situation, we need to be ready to bring the gospel of peace. Let's suppose for a moment that I'm talking to someone who utterly disagrees with everything I agree on, I believe is foundational to life. 
They disagree on the reality of God because they're an atheist. They disagree with the ways of Jesus in so many areas of life, and we're having the discussion. From what I can see in the Bible that I hold to as God's word, God's standard for my life is his followers. It's not going to be their standard for their life because they don't believe it's true as of this junction. I see that there are two truths that I must hold to at the same time when I'm entering into this conversation. Number one, I must hold to the truths of Jesus and his ways. Listen to me. I will not compromise what Jesus says. What he says about human sexuality, I will hold to human sexuality. What he says about having peace with him, I will hold to as having peace with him. What is said in the word of God, I believe every word in this book is inspired of him. It is breathed out by him and it is useful. It is profitable that it will teach us, it will train us, it will correct us so that the man and woman of God may be prepared for every good work. We will hold to that without compromise, amen? But at the same time, I must hold to the truth given to me in the Bible that the person in front of me is of utmost value. And I am to somehow show them by the way I treat them the value they have to Jesus. The person I'm talking to is made in the likeness of my heavenly father. Now you may say, hey, they're a long way away from it. I get it. But I see beyond what I can see. I see into the unseen. I see based upon the truth of God's word. And I must see that they are made in the image of God. And no matter what they hold to at this time, they are as of much value to God as I am. You say, David, how can you say that? Because God paid the price of his son for them just like he paid the price of his son for me. They are not of greater value than I, but they are of equal value than I. And the way I interact with that person needs to hold to both truths without compromise. Do you know you can be right and still be wrong? I want to hold all the truth of God's word. And we hold to that even if the way they treat us is without honor and without respect. I mean, if we returned like for like, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, why would the scripture say, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all? Why would scripture say that if someone is not gonna do evil to us and show us dishonor that we're supposed to return with a different spirit? Why would Jesus command us, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you if someone wasn't gonna hate you? Why would he say, bless those who curse you if you and I were not gonna be cursed? The way we disagree matters as much as what we disagree on. And I know right now some of you are clicking off Bible verses. You're saying, I can't remember where it is. But doesn't the Bible say, didn't Jesus say, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace but a sword. Answer, yeah, he said it. There it is, Matthew 10, 34. But I need you to hear something. When we interpret scripture, we keep the whole of scripture in mind. So a hermeneutic, there's your big word. I paid a lot of money for that in college, so I'm gonna throw it out every so often. Hermeneutic is just the, the, the philosophy behind the interpretation of scripture. One foundation of good biblical hermeneutic is scripture interprets scripture. You keep the whole of scripture in mind. So when Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, he doesn't mean that we as a children get to be disrespectful, dishonoring, unloving jerks. You say, how did I know that? Because I read the whole book. I see what he says. You know what it means? Jesus is telling us that no matter how loving and respectful we are, 
no matter what kind of spirit. You know what? Even when you're willing to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, they'll still put you on a cross. You go to the cross anyway. See, there's still gonna be division, separation. No matter how honorable we are, we still walk in honor. Why? Because we carry a different spirit. We are not of those of this world. We are in the world. We're not of the world. That's why Jesus said, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. There's that word again. Peace with everyone. But sometimes, guess what? Others will not allow peace. That's okay. As far as it depends on me, we're going to be at peace. Well, pastor, didn't Jesus say from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it? And some of you have really grabbed on to the older translation that the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and violent men lay hold of it. Didn't he say it? Absolutely. But again, scripture interprets scripture. What is the force that we use to lay hold of the kingdom of God? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said hours before he was crucified, if you love. History tells us that the Roman Empire was Christianized in the early 300 AD. So for 300 years from the time of Christ's birth, the Roman Empire was what we would call pagan. They worshipped a plethora of all sorts of gods that you've probably studied in school under the idea of mythology. They didn't think it was mythology at all. It was their theology. How did the Roman Empire change? History tells us that Rome suffered two major plagues, one in the 2nd century, one in the 3rd century, one in the 100s, one in the 200s. In these plagues, they didn't have all the knowledge we have today about science and keeping yourself safe and such. Here's all they knew. They knew that if you got around someone was sick, you tended to get sick. They didn't want to get sick. They didn't want to die because their whole theology about death didn't have the hope of heaven in it at all. It was a pretty grim, hopeless view of eternity. They really did not want to die. So if your spouse got sick with the plague, you know what most Romans did with their spouse? Booted them to the street. Your kid got sick. Guess what they did? They booted them to the street. They got them out of the house, and they were left on the street to fend for themselves in their illness. In fact, the wealthy of Rome were leaving the large city and they were going out to places in the countryside. Sound familiar to anyone? Guess who cared for the sick? While the wealthy were leaving Rome, the Christians started moving into Rome. And they started caring for the sick and the poor. The initial idea of hospitals, Christians, showing the love of Jesus. And catch hold of this. They were loving people who had persecuted them. I'm telling you, some of the things that were done to believers, I can't even fathom. Drenching them in oil and putting them on the post and lighting them to light the streets. Putting them in the arena. I remember standing in the Roman Colosseum. I stood on the floor. And all the people were overwhelmed by the grandness of the architecture. And all I could think is below me are the blood of men and women who would not renounce the name of Jesus. And they would put them out there to fight the hungry lions and the hungry tigers all for sport. That's what was done 
in roller coasting seasons. And yet, when given an opportunity to love, these men and women of God lived by a different spirit. It didn't change Rome the first time it happened, but the second time it happened, it started to change. And Rome became became Christianized. After Constantine, there was another emperor. And that emperor said, hey, we got to get paganism back in Rome. This Christian thing is overwhelming us. And he looked at the pagan priests and said, hey, y'all got to do something. These Christians love people so much. we got to start doing that too or we'll never get paganism back in. And they said, we don't have any room for that. We don't have any space for that. We don't do that. That is the force that changes the world. Let's be honest. We live in a day of anger. I'm tired of being angry. We live in a day of division. We live in a day of polarization. I get it. It's not the first time in our nation's history it's happened. I'm not even going to tell you it's the worst. I don't believe it's the worst. And some of you are going to write me an email. Just don't do it because I'm just going to send you back two words, okay? Civil war. We're not there yet. And by the grace of God, we won't get there. We need to remember the 60s. We need to remember other times. We've been here before, but I'm not trying to say this isn't serious. I'm just saying it is a place we've been before. And I am confident that one of the greatest witnesses we can have to the love of Jesus in our present day is the way we lovingly handle disagreement with both believers and non-believers, both in person and the Lord help us when we type in our online community, the way we disagree matters as much as what we disagree on because the person is as important as the issue. Is that not what the cross of Jesus says? I'm going to confess to you. I've taken some steps backwards in the last few years. I have found a anger boiling up inside of me. And I understand there's some things to be angry about. I get it. But here's what's interesting. Jesus did have some anger. But he let that anger turn to compassion. Jesus stood on the um, Mount of Olives and he overlooked Jerusalem. And he wept for them. Because they were sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on people. We've got to ask God to fill us with compassion. Jesus, listen to me. Anger is not going to resolve the issues of our nation. James 1, man, it's been in the forefront of my mind. Be so, slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I can be angry, but in my anger, I do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And the only time we quote that, by the way, is about marriages. Marriage is not the context of Ephesians 4. It's just live. Marriage is part of it. So you can have some sleepless nights, I get it, but it's not limited to that. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, for in doing so, we actually give the devil a foothold, Ephesians says. We fall prey to the scheme of the enemy. So we can be angry and sin not. We can ask it to motivate us to righteousness, but what we will do is God's going to fill us with compassion because what our nation needs, listen to me, is revival. 
Our nation needs revival more than it needs anything else. And it's going to happen from a people who are willing to walk by a different spirit. I'm tired of stepping back into the old spirit. Now, I can say I'm not back to where I was decades ago. And I can give you excuses. But then in the end, that's all they are is excuses. I succumb to the spirit of the age instead of living by the spirit of Jesus inside of me. The fruit of the spirit inside of me is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, mercy, gentleness, and self-control. Does that sound like our nation right now? Does it sound like the church? I want it to be the church. I want it to be me. And so I'm going to step into it. I can't control everyone else, but I resolve that I'm going to attach myself closely to Jesus and I'm going to live by a different spirit. This thing, I can control it. Hey, David, have you read James 3? I've read James 3 a lot. And what it basically says is the tongue is impossible for man to control. But I've read other parts of the Bible. And Jesus said what is impossible with man is possible with God. I have a different spirit in me. I have a spirit of self-control. Believe it or not, I don't have to say everything that comes to my mind. You would be surprised how much runs through this brain of mine while I'm up here. I'm asking you to join in. It's a radical thing. Here's here's what's cool. I've had some pastors in our community. It's not the totality of pastors. It's just some that know each other. So we didn't try to make this big thing. A lot of us have been feeling the same thing. So we actually wrote something. We called it a call for Christian unity in Abilene. As your homework, I'm just going to ask you to take some time to read it. You say, David, how long is it? Two pages. It'll take you probably seven minutes. Now, if you contemplate it, if you let the Lord do some work in your life through it, a little longer. You can look at the scriptures. You're going to be able to go online and find it at beltway.org unity. You can go there and all you got to do is highlight the scripture and it pulls it up for you. And you can read it and you can let it get inside of you. And we are making a commitment as Christian leaders that we're going to walk by a different spirit. Are we still going to disagree with people? You betcha. Am I going to disagree with what's going on in our society at a level you can't even begin to understand? But I will not compromise the love that Jesus has for people who disagree with me. To by the grace of God, I'm going to show people love. I'm going to have my feet fitted with the readiness to bring peace. Because I believe when we bring peace, we change the atmosphere of a conversation. Eventually that person can be open to the peace that only Jesus can bring to their life. And I want to see people's lives changed by Jesus. And so I ask you to join in, if you don't mind. Look at it and join us. And let's live by a different spirit, if I may, an uncompromising spirit. So I've got something I want to tell you further, but I want to just pray about this for a moment. So why don't you bow your head? And I'm just asking if you would ask Jesus to put a different set of shoes on your feet. It's time to change shoes. What I read online will not determine my attitude. What I hear from the news sources will not determine the attitude of my mind. I have the mind of Christ.
the scripture says. We're going to walk in. In fact, the journey we're going to go on this fall, we'll talk about in just a second, is all about positioning ourselves to have the power to live from God in a different way. Would you just ask Jesus to put a different set of shoes on your feet? If you've been living by the spirit of the age, and a lot of mine, I will confess, was internal more than external. But the way I think matters as much as what I say. Jesus said that. Jesus said that if I lust after a woman in my heart, it's the same as committing adultery. If I have hatred towards my brother, it's the same as committing murder. Do we not believe Jesus meant what he said? So I will confess some of mine, I have not said it, but I have had it overwhelm my mind and my heart and I'm done. And I'm just asking we walk by a different spirit. Would you ask Jesus to put two truths in you? One, please hear me. Some of you are going to say, David, you're compromising truth. I'm not compromising any truth at all. Disagree all you want to disagree. I bet in this room we have a lot of disagreement on politics. Disagree. Just do so in the right spirit. Talk to one another, but do so in the right spirit. Challenge one another, but do so in the right spirit. The way we disagree matters as much as what we disagree on. Let's just walk by a different day. Let's have the truth of Jesus and his ways firmly inside of our hearts and let's stand for them. But let's also stand for the truth of God's work in the lives of somebody else. And let's be uncompromised in the totality of the truth of God's word. I'm tired of being wrong and being right. Would you just ask Jesus to change it? Father, change my Mindset, my demeanor, change our mindset and demeanor, put on us the right shoes. We need these shoes as much as ever in this day and age. And I believe as we put on shoes that are fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, we're going to have more peace reign in our hearts and more peace reign in our minds. Forgive us where we have not let peace rule in our hearts and mind. Forgive us where we've given into the spirit of the age. No matter what anyone else does, Father, your spirit reigns inside of us. Fill us fresh with your spirit. Man, that's a prayer, right? Fill us fresh with your spirit, God, that we might live as a witness to the reality of who you are. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we go, some of you are asking, how in the world do we do that? Believe it or not, our spiritual growth journey this fall starts in two weeks. Say two weeks. It is actually about positioning ourselves. And what I mean position, I don't mean like a physical position, though you can do that. I'm talking about the position of our heart and our mind, where we position our heart and mind in such a way that we live from God and not for God. And when you live from God, you actually live from the resources of God. You live from the resources of God, you have the power to live a way you didn't think you could live. And we are going to talk about how to do that. We call it the restful life. And it's going to be a great journey. You could also call it the peace-filled life. It's the same thing. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, you've heard this, is to participate in four things for eight weeks. I would ask everyone to be a part of it. Number one, attend every service. We have six services over two days. We have our Plus Thursday. We have two at our South Campus, three at our North Campus. You have plenty of opportunities. And in a pinch, say pinch, usually online service. I'm just going to tell you it's harder to engage online. I've done it. I'm focused, and it's harder to engage. Not impossible. You have to work hard at it. If you're in the region, I would tell you to get in, per in person. Number two, be a part of a group. The way we just, I can't even tell you how many times in my group they've disagreed with me. And we're talking about my sermon. 
and they've said something like, how dare you? I've got a master's in biblical theology. What do you have? I have not said that. It's in my brain. See, I'm getting smarter. And then you know what I found out later? The Spirit of God told me on Tuesday, they were right. You were wrong. And guess what I did? I took a step. Community needs to be part of your growth. If you're not in a group, get in a group. If you have friends that are in a group, join their group. You can go. I'll let you, I'll let you go, okay? Just say, Pastor David said I could come. Here I am, okay? And it'll be great. But we're going to have our group's launch party tonight, 6.30 p.m. at the Abilene Zoo. We invite everyone to come out, enjoy the zoo. If you're already in a group, come out, enjoy the zoo. We're going to have a great time. If you're not in a group, just come out, and we're going to help you find opportunities to join a group there. Third, read a book. The book is entitled Called to Rain. Of the thousands of books I've read, I'm not exaggerating, it's one of the better ones I've ever read. It is available for you physically at our physical campuses in the four years today. The book cost us 10 bucks, okay? We're not trying to get, we're not trying to make any money, we're not passing it on. If you can give $10, that great. If you can't give $10, take a book anyway. We want you to have as many books as you need. We buy extra. We have plenty of books here. So you don't have to worry about, I'll just go buy mine from Amazon, do that. We've got plenty of books here. Get a book, okay? If you can't afford it, don't worry about it. We all have different seasons like that. I've had seasons. And then others, you know what's going to happen? Some people are going to give 20. Some people are going to give 50. Some people are going to get 100. Some people are going to give 10,000. If you're going to give 10,000, come talk to me first. I've got some needs in my own life. No. I'm just kidding with you. Whatever you, the Lord tells you to do, all the books will get, the cost of the books will get covered. It happens every year. We're great. The fourth thing, this is big. Invite a friend. In the chair back at both campuses is an invitation that looks like this. It just looks like a postcard. I want you to grab one of these. When you grab something from the chair back, it usually means you have to lean forward, pick it up, and pull it out. Okay? Believe it or not, I've got lights on me, but I can see you. Okay? I want to challenge you, and what it allows you to do is basically invite a friend to join you. It gives information on the website, and you get to circle the service you come to and say, join me. There are people who want to live the way we talked about today. I'm going to challenge you that our world aches for what we talked about this morning. It's the hope of the world. And God puts you where you are to engage those friends, and so I invite you to do that. So would you do this? Would you bow your heads? I just want us to pray for this journey we're going to go on. I pray, oh God, that we would ex accept your invitation. We confess, given the nature of the last years, that we are weary and burdened. And you said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my, your yoke is easy, your burden is light. We receive that invitation. And I believe there will be an anointing for us to walk in that this season, I ask in Jesus' name. And God's people said,